the great read, the pamphlet. Uh, I hope you will all take a copy and have a study of it and, you know, put, put it in front of other people who would be interested and, and open to what it's got to tell us because it is, as, you know, once Ranjit puts it in the context, you see that although the CPB has become an irrelevance, it's become an irrelevance precisely because it followed this programme. The communists, when they published their programme first, this British Road to Socialism, were a force. And everybody knew and respected the Communist Party. And they knew that the best elements of the working class were in the Communist Party. They knew that. So, you know, three decades of communist work by good revolutionaries in this country had built that reputation, that prestige, that that atmosphere that meant that workers did exactly what Ranjit said, gave it their lives, their resources, bequeathed their property when they died, gave it literally everything they could give it because they believed in the cause and they believed the Communist Party was fighting for that cause. And for 30 years, it was. And then it wasn't. But it took a long time for people to understand that it wasn't. And by the time they'd kind of properly understood it, you know, the leadership of the working class had been totally dissolved and destroyed. Um, and, you know, it wasn't only... The, the CPB or the CPGB and their revisionist line that was responsible for that. You know, revisionism was an international phenomenon. And first and foremost, you know, the guilty party, of course, was the, was the leader in that was the Khrushchevites. And the impetus they gave to revive Trotskyism in our movement and all of the anti-communist lies that circulated from the 50s onwards and demoralised working people everywhere. But the British road to socialism in Britain played a huge part in that demoralisation and that diversion of good people's energies up the garden path and away from ex taking, getting them practically involved in doing the exact opposite of what they wanted to be doing and what they thought they were doing. You know, and what a tragedy that is. And on top of that, you just take a step back and ask yourself how many lives globally might have been spared if the communists had stuck to their revolutionary program from the 1950s onwards and hadn't abnegated that important duty. Even if they hadn't managed to have a successful revolution in Britain, even if all they'd managed to do was keep the class conscious, class conscious, and keep the ruling class focused on trying to preserve social peace at home and stop the ruling class from feeling so confident to go everywhere around the world and, you know, bomb whoever was getting in their way and, and, and you know, use every means to loot the planet. Even if they'd just done that, that bit of their duty, you know, imagine how many lives that have been lost in the last 70 years would not have been lost. You know, this is not a small question, and um, it's really important for us to understand where wrong ideas lead us so that we can make sure that we're sticking to right ideas, the right ideas which will free humanity, get us out of this endless cycle. You know, it can feel, when you're reading, listening to this history of the last 100 years, can feel like you're stuck on a ridiculous treadmill. Like, God, this has come around. These ideas, they're old. They keep re rehashing the same old lies and, you know, duping and tricking workers. We have a big movement and then it goes down and a big movement and then it goes down. The right theory underpinning the mass movement can lead to success and we can break out of this stupid cycle and this endless, you know, charnel house of lives that comes to whether it's, whether it's economic destruction of people's lives or physical military destruction of people's lives, you know, one way or the other, capitalism destroys life on an industrial scale. Since World War I, the scale has been industrial on every front. You know, whether it's famines or wars, the scale is phenomenal that imperialism has created. Uh, the machinery of death is created. You know, we have the way out 
there is a way out. You know, so as, as well as, you know, getting angry about what's been done to our movement, we can feel, you know, optimistic that we have the answers. That, that means we have a future. You know, we're not doomed to endlessly repeat these cycles. But it's really, it's really struck me listening to Ranjit's talk, that, that jump, you just look at the names of the programs that the Communist Party had for Soviet Britain when they launched their party, you know, in the wake of uh, the birth of the Soviet Union and the, and the popularity of socialism. How did they build a new party? They said clearly, we want Soviet socialism in Britain, for a Soviet Britain. Then in the 30s, what was their program? Class against class. We are fighting the class war. There's our side, there's the enemy side. Our side needs to win. Yes, it's clear, isn't it, what you're fighting for and what you're, what you're trying to attract and that you express it very pithily. There's three words, really strong, class against class. And then suddenly, the British road to socialism. <laughs> Everything's changed. There's a new way. Don't worry about it. Oh, we're, we're tired of fighting. You know. And you can see that message is initially very acceptable to people. Oh, we don't have to fight the class war like we used to. Oh, thank God for that. It's hard work. <laughs> oh, thank God. We've come into a civilised time. I mean, but Khrushchev did the same trick on the people of the Soviet Union, didn't he? He'd look at everything they'd been through and how hard they'd been fighting for how long to get the gains they'd got. And think how the message of peaceful coexistence and the end of the class struggle must have fallen on people who'd gone through the revolution, the war of intervention, the war to industrialise and collectivise, uh, the war against fascism, the reconstruction of their country. How nice it was to hear someone say at the top of the party, oh, it's all right, it's all over now, no more fighting. Oh, thank God for that. You know? Disarm, demobilise your forces just when actually you need to be telling them the opposite. But the opposite is a hard message to hear. You need a very staunch leadership that's prepared to give the truth rather than easy, plausible lies. But where the plausible lies lead you is where we all don't want to be. So uh, just before I open you up to a wider um, questions and answers, there was a couple of other things that struck me when Rajiv was talking. And one was this thing about how there's a common tactic of the fake Marxists. Right from the days of Marx, and then through Lenin's writings, you see it when Lenin talks about the legal Marxists in Russia, and how as, there have been times when Marxism becomes a fashion, becomes popular, becomes something people are looking for, and then suddenly the ruling class is really good at producing all these strands of fake Marxism. It's always got, always got different names. But in the name of Marxism, they'll hold up little quotations of Marx or Lenin Actually, with the aim of putting Marx and Lenin in the bin to improve Marx, here's what Marx said, here's what Lenin said. They take it out of context, in isolation, and they rely on the ignorance of their audience. They rely on you not knowing Marxism so they can present this bit. And this is exactly what the CPB do. You know, they hold up this... Uh, Lenin told us to go into the Labour Party. But if you go and read the book that he said that in, uh, left-wing socialism and infantile disorder. Or if you read the proceedings, as Ranjit was talking about, of the second meeting of the Comintern, or if you just, you know, a little bit wider, the history of the formation and Lenin's, Lenin's ongoing commentary on the Labour Party, 
you'll understand something completely different, as Ranjit pointed out in his talk. Or you can just read this. <laughs> no, we've, we've, we've summed it up for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But all of the, this, this way of quoting Marx to kill Marx, quoting Lenin to kill Lenin, it all sounds clever if you don't know anything. And so our best defence is knowledge. We have to understand ourselves, the tenets and the principles of scientific socialism, we have to find for ourselves the broader context of the quotations we're being given and assured our Marxism. Don't just take it as read that somebody who tells you something is, even, even me, if I tell you Marx said something, go and check. Did he? And what did he actually mean? And why did he say it? And what was the context? Don't abnegate your responsibility for making sure that those things are actually true. But I believe you. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, good. Well done. Um, <laughs> You know, the proponents of charlatanry and lies rely on our ignorance and our inability to go and check on anything. You know, and it's true, you know, we're tired, we're busy, we've got lots to do. But this is important stuff and it can't be left to a few individuals to know and everybody else to just follow. Um, just one last thing, a small side note I was thinking about when Ranjit was talking about Gordon Brown and the bank bailouts and how they've sort of buried the bank bailouts now and they've, you know, we've all gone quiet about what that actually meant. But, of course, they never tell us about where this cost of living crisis came from. They go on and on about it and it's like a euphemism, but the euphemism is for inflation. And again, you know, we're, they, they, they say these weird things like inflation means that there's too many people who've got jobs because there's too much demand in the economy. So what we need is people to have lower wages and fewer jobs, and then the demand will go out of the economy, and then we won't have inflation. That's, that's bourgeois voodoo for you. Mm. Reality is, the biggest driver for inflation has been all the money printing. And what has been the biggest driver of money printing in the recent decades? The bailouts. We are paying again. and So we, we bailed out the banks, printed a shitload of money, pardon me, then we had austerity to pay back for all of the, all of the bailing out. Then, then COVID needed another bailout. Who of? They said the people, no, big business. There was another collapse. There was a collapse just before they decided that they were gonna have a COVID lockdown after all. The COVID lockdown wasn't a health measure. It was a masking measure for a bailout of Wall Street and <coughs> the city of London. Big business got Absolutely billions. Again, how did they get it? Money printing. Money printing and austerity. And the money printing is theft from you and me. It's devaluing the currency, which means your wages, your pensions, your savings are all worth less. And suddenly, not that suddenly, it's been creeping up for a long time. But now there's a runaway scenario. And COVID exacerbated it because of supply lines issues. But the runaway scenario of inflation can't be tamed by any of the measures they're talking about. They created it over years by printing and devaluing the currency. They don't talk about that. They say, look over there, it's Russia's fault. That Putin, he wants to destroy your life. In their attempt to destroy Russia, they cut themselves off from cheap commodities that they need. They thought that they would quickly bring Russia to its needs. And then take everything. And then they'd get everything and it would be worth a bit of short-term pain. Now they're turning around to the workers and saying, no, no, we have to keep on with this because there's no other way out for them to save their system but war. They've got to destroy Russia. They've got to destroy China. They've got to stop countries which are independent so that they can loot, super-exploit you know, all of their materials and their people. 
Anyway, I'm going to open it up wider now. Questions, comments, thoughts? I'd just like to say that um, it's one thing to, to destroy capitalism, but it's also to give people who have little experience of public ownership and work control an image of what that might be like. Um, I mean, have you, I'm saying that, I'm thinking, Christ, if you could just find a half-decent school or a half-decent hospital in your own area and a bus that ran on time, it's getting to that state now, isn't it, where you'd be grateful and you'd think, oh, look at this, worker control. Because this, they really have just hollowed out our, our, our society uh, within, within my lifetime. And that's just the small stuff, really. Um, but I think it's very important for this party to, um, to correct thinking about Soviet Russia and the game. I think that, that's, that's hugely important. Um, I, I stumbled into this party and had no idea in the lies I'd been told about Russia. Although I was brought up to, to have Russia as a goal, that, that, that was true, that Stalin was not a monster and Stalin was strong. I was brought up to believe that, but I had no idea um, uh, about the fictions that have been woven by Congress and stuff. So that's really important that that gets told, because that's, that's definitely not getting told at school or university by any means. Um, and there was something else I was going to say, but I can't remember. So there, because when, when Goad redid the uh, English curriculum, I couldn't work out at the time why animal farm was still on it. Because I thought Orwell was a socialist. And I thought, why have they got why have they allowed that? They made a mistake. But of course it's perfect, isn't it? Because all the kids up and down this country are parroting that this is a parallel of Marx and Russia. So it's it it's in and the teachers all God, the teachers all believe it. So I think that's when you talk about this party being the repository of the truth, it really is. That's not in a hyperbole. That's that's it, because no one else is going to say it. Kathy, um, the, the last speaker made some good points about the the lies about the Soviet Union, and of course, until COVID, we were having for thirty years we had the Stalin Society, which had two aims, really. One was to bring together members of the anti-revolutionary movement when there was no party. There was no party to bring these people together from their disparate little groups. And the second and very important thing, primary thing, really, because you had to do this before you could get the other, was to counter the lies about the Soviet Union. Um, many and multifarious on many different fronts. And our um, chair has herself written an article on George Orwell, um, which is one of the pamphlets of the Soviet Union, which is still available. And there are, there's still a wealth of material as a result of 30 years of work by the Stalin Society, lectures on different aspects, many, many, many different aspects of the Soviet Union and, and the history of the working class movement, which is still a valuable resource and something you've got to think. We are anyway, we have thought about, you know, bringing more of them back into general use. But yes, it, it is very true. And that these, these old, hoary lies, most of which were founded by the Hearst and Goebbels, and then repeated by conquest, still 
in um, circulation. And they're still dredged up in relation to Ukraine, in relation to modern things. Always another example of you know, the, the massacres by the, by the Russians, formerly the Soviets. Massacres which would never happened, which are, which are all stuff of legend. Um, but we've got, we've got pamphlets about the so-called massacres. Um, and it is very important that we, as part of our armory, that we understand and can counter this propaganda, but it still goes on. And it goes on for the simple reason that the Soviet Union, if the truth is understood, is a powerful example and a motivational factor. God, yes, if we could have a society like the Soviet Union, be seventh heaven. Because you have true democracy, true control, and ownership. So you, you take ownership of, of the state, and once you have ownership of the state, you can take ownership of the resources, the land, the industry, and then you can, then you can direct resources where they are needed. And then finally, you will get decent housing, decent healthcare, decent education, because the resources are all there, as our speakers have, have repeated today. The resources are there, the wealth is there, but it's not directed to where it's needed. For that, we need control. Mm. And the Soviet people had control mm. and used it brilliantly. And we owe them our freedom today from fascism. Mm. And that, that's, that's a freedom which is now under threat, and we have to understand it why our, our analysis and our spreading the analysis about what's happening in Ukraine is so important. Because we are now in danger of losing one of the most precious things the Soviet Union gave to us, freedom from fascism. It's the Soviet Union, it's the Red Army that defeated fascism, not the so-called allies, you know, the, the, the Americans, the British. They were busy fighting for their colonies mm -hmm. until it looked like the Soviet, the Red Army was going to free the whole of Europe. And then wham! You got the second front. Yeah. Three years Stalin was asking for the second front. To save Europe for capitalism, been under no illusion about that. And that's why Germany, no, not Germany, France, Italy, Greece, which were on the brink of becoming social country, communist countries, were rescued by the capitalists by the second front. So we really need to understand a lot about what the Soviet Union does because we need inspiration, we need, we need a model, we need hope of what can be achieved. What is achievable, it's been done, it has been achieved. And that's the importance of countering this propaganda, socialism doesn't work, it's never worked anywhere. Hmm. And that's, that's one of the main crimes too of the anti-revisionists, isn't it? They put the weight of the so-called left on the side of the imperialists in their anti-Soviet propaganda. Mm. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. 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 If I may just very quickly, briefly, add to what Claire and, and Kathy have said about that importance of the Soviet example. That is, of course, why Joseph Stalin is vilified, mm. because he was the leader of the greatest socialist country when it was building socialism and going from strength to strength and proving that socialism works on every single front. That's why he's vilified. That's why we uphold him. Right? Equally, um, that example that the Soviet Union gave us, yes, they lie about it. Yes, they try and bury it, but it's unburyable. It's like Marxism. They can lie about it. They can try and bury, bury it. It keeps popping back up. Why? Because it's true, and you can't unlive what's happened. 
And once it's there, it's there. Once, once Marxism had been, had been developed, had discovered these laws of how society works, no amount of lying and burying could make it disappear because it's the truth. No amount of trying to lie and bury the Soviet Union and a, a working-class history will ultimately succeed because it happened, because it's all there for those who want to find it, and increasingly people will want to find it. And, you know, yes, it's our job to uphold that and be a beacon, an unapologetic beacon that doesn't run away when people try and poke us and say, no, I'm not ashamed to say that I'm a supporter of the leadership of Joseph Stalin and everything that was done in the Soviet Union. I aspire to that for the working class. And if you can say that strongly and, and confidently to somebody, they will do a double take. If you're not defensive, they're like, oh, well, you must know something I don't know then. Because you don't seem embarrassed when I say to you who Stalin is. And, and, and to me, that's, the, that's what I think when George says, if you don't run, they can't chase you. If you don't run away from the reality that socialism means the dictatorship of the proletariat, it means working class power. If you, get, if you don't have political power, and you don't have resources, you're nothing. They're more than happy. Marx said long ago about apropos the, the church, the Church of England. He said, uh, the established church will more readily pardon an attack on 38 out of 39 of its articles, its kind of articles of faith, than on 1 39th of its income. You know? It's a big property owner. You can say what you want about religion, really, but don't challenge the status quo in society. That's the same way in our society. You can pretend to be a socialist, you can pretend to be a communist, be a Trotskyist, and you can have a nice job and you know, confuse students, that's okay. But you can't challenge property relations. And what the Labour Party doesn't do, has never done, under any of its leaders, even Corbyn, was challenge property relations. Challenge the fact that all the wealth is held by a tiny number of people. And it's quite well buried, that fact. Well, there's a guy who wrote this book, Who Owns England? It's worth looking at, because he had a very difficult time finding out who owns England, because it's all buried under law. And they, British ruling class is quite wily. They know the best way to preserve inequality is not for it really to be known about. <laughs> and to pretend it's something else. I mean, I had one of my slides is when, you know, Labour is an imperialist party, when Gordon Brown made a very big speech in 2005 at a tour of Africa saying, we no longer have to apologise for British, British colonialism because it was a force for good in the world and we want to bring it back as all they celebrate all the good things. They were saying meeting Kenyans and <laughs> just, you know, unapo unapologetic in their defence of inequality and the rights of the capitalist class to carry on plundering. And it's this we have to get away from. And that means you have to defend all of these uncomfortable things. You can put them in popular language, but every time you say socialism, the question you'll get asked is, how are you going to pay for it? And the underlying kind of, the underlying message of the question, the, the presumption of how you're going to pay for it is, you're only going to think of paying it in the normal way, by raising taxes without challenging property rights as they exist. Property is nine-tenths of the law, the capitalists are in charge. That's what it means. <laughs> we all, property's not against the law. Yeah. The capitalists are in charge. You don't run around and go, well, capitalists are in charge, so you just have to do whatever you're told because they own everything. But until you challenge that, you can do nothing. And that's the, the essence of what is socialism. It's redistribution. It's challenging poverty. Why is poverty not the main topic on the news every single moment of every single day? It's what causes the most deaths and problems. 
Every problem can be traced back to poverty, and poverty has its roots in inequality, and inequality has its roots in monopoly capitalism. So they don't want you to follow that chain of dominance, so they give you every problem. Guns are a problem, knives are a problem, drugs are a problem. They're all problems of inequality and poverty and capitalism. Housing's a problem, health is a problem. They're all problems of poverty and inequality and capitalism. But they're just desperate to kind of show you all the ills of the world, make you feel powerless, and not make you see the very obvious solution. But if you don't run, and if you defend this idea of socialism, meaning real socialism, economic redistributive socialism, you don't run away from it and point out the, bl the blindingly obvious. Workers will understand that because it's obvious. Like as sure as sure as a cup's a cup and a, a table's in front of me, it's so obvious. I can't I can't sort out your problems if I've got nothing to give you. The wealth of the world is there. It's ours. We just want to use it to solve humanity's problems. It's a very simple program. The wonderful thing about where we are now, as opposed to where we were 100 years ago, where the Bolsheviks were in 1917, is that we have all that experience, all the successes and the ways in which it was subverted to learn from that can't be taken away from us. We might feel like we're starting from such a low plane, but we're starting from a higher plane than the, last, the first wave of revolution started from. What did they have to go on? Just the Paris Commune. 50-odd days of power in one state, one city. 71. 71, sorry. <laughs> 71 days of power in one city. To show you just a glimpse of what does workers' power look like? What is working-class rule and how will we do it? You know, they had to do... They were still living in a world where people could say to them, well, Marxism, it's a nice idea, but it'll never work in practice. It's never been done, has it? I mean, they say that to us now, but it's not true, is it? But, you know, they could, you could feel like the, the power of that. Well, maybe Marxism's still just a theory and, you know, it's not really been tested. And if we try and put it into practice, it'll all go wrong because we haven't really understood human nature. Um, we have all that experience. We can have that confidence that comes from understanding. And one of the best things to empower ourselves as well as to take to our fellow workers, is to read literature from the Soviet Union because it breathes life into it. You've been hounded with all and, and, and brainwashed with all these, bombarded with these images of the gulag and the greyness and the misery and the awfulness of life, Soviet rule, God, so awful and we're all robots. Uh, but if you read the literature that came from the Soviet Union... It was a renaissance of human culture and civilization. It's phenomenal. And the spirit jumps off the page at you, and the hope and the vibrance and the engagement of ordinary people in every aspect of their life, and their sense of, of involvement and of usefulness, the value that they had in their lives. You know, that every single job that everybody's doing is something society has decided needs doing. And therefore, no matter what you do, you're contributing to the common good... And you are watching society rise up around you as a result of all those combined efforts, including your effort. You can't put a price on that. Can you imagine every day waking up and feeling like, oh, brilliant, I get to go to work and make things better. I, I feel like that. <laughs> <laughs> Do something useful. Most of us can't really imagine that that could be true. And Soviet literature does bring that to life for you and give you that kind of inner steel about what you're doing. No, definitely. I know what it is. That is the vision. I was wondering, are you going to share the slides, please? 
Yes, I've broken all. They're, they're rubbish slides, but what you can do. No, they're not rubbish. I'm going to read that. <laughs> <laughs> but his slides sometimes they can bring. It's like a revision guide. Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, what I might do is that if I take the presentation um, and try and put the slides with it and modify them a bit. Sure. What make it like make it in the video? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, change it around. I'll do something. We'll do something with the video. No problem. Also, if you're a member of the party, then probably I could just send you a PowerPoint thing yeah. that Rajit can send me. As a PDF. People always ask for my presentation, like in medicine. I never give them. I go, yeah, I'll send them. <laughs> I have to work to make my slides. Man, you make your own. Yeah, yeah. Don't worry, we'll send them out. I'm going to steal your slides. I'm not going to steal your slides. That is in the business. No, no. You steal the that PowerPoint that was while you prepare something. I'm else. sorry, that was totally joking. I will. You can totally steal the slides. We can have them. I will send. I will send it out to people. I've got Dexter and then Tim. So, given Comrade Ranjit's excellent critique of the BRS, um, what should be the attitude of the Marxist-Leninists of Britain towards the CPB and, and the Morning Star? You know, what should be our attitude? Excellent question. Uh, well, I was going to come to Tim next, but he's disappeared. So. I mean, my, my general feeling is to, to treat them as if they're your comrades. They basically are. They're people who are good people, vast majority of them. You know, uh, they're people who read Marx, Engels, Lenin, and Stalin. Many of them are sadly of a dying generation of communists. I mean, feel that deeply because I've grown up amongst that generation. They're good people who remember the Soviet Union, who remember the heyday of the communist movement. They're that generation. They're good guys who have a good social life, who feel for the workers. They are quite organically linked with the working class communities. They're people who belong in this organization. They're people who, if they didn't sell out to Labour programmatically, we would have joined their organisation. There'd be no reason to have another organisation. This, you know, my, my parents who, and their generation who started this particular group that's led to this, wanted to join the Communist Party of Britain or the new Communist Party or the CPBML, but found that they were so... They were going down that road of that they actually led to them dissolving their own party, right? CPGB dissolved itself. And given their politics, if you, and they were having struggles within them at that time, they were becoming smaller and more diffuse and more schismatic. You couldn't just, you couldn't just join them and throw your lot in with them because you'd just be wasting your time. But the people who were left there are good people. And they've got this logical contradiction. They don't like Labour Party. They don't like the leaders of the Labour Party. They don't really even want to vote Labour Party, but they've all been drummed into it for so many years, 20, 30, 40, 50, 70 years, that you just have to support Labour. They're better than everything else. You know? And it's like if they get over that, then they'll be very useful. And then, of course, they've adopted lots of other disparate trends in, in trying to fade away and not be destroyed. They've kind of tried to adopt a bit of nationalism you know, and, and saying that oh, Welsh nationalism is basically a good thing. They never used to say that. It's not a good thing. Wales, you know, we won't go into the question of, of the nations that can constitute Britain, but essentially, no, I won't go into it at all. <laughs> <laughs> That's another but they've taken on nationalism, they've taken on greenwashing, which is, you know, they've taken on Scottish nationalism, usually the Tories on bikes, they've taken on a bit of Idpol, and a lot of their kids are really... Um, affected by gender ideology and identity politics. So they've taken a lot of, essentially, 
bourgeois currents of thought and division, which makes their youth section very weak, very divisive, very... And, they, and some of their youth have been with us in the past and left over these questions. And they even kind of have a... Some of those few people, they have real hatred towards us because of what we say about, you know, man's a man and a woman's a woman. They really object to that. We didn't want to say that. We didn't think it needed to be said. But when it became, like, such a big... You know, question amongst young people in our society hasn't been put there by mistake. It's been put there to dis dis confuse them, disorientate them, break them from progressive politics, break them from their real sense of disquiet and alienation from society, which is about class and about fighting capitalism. And they've really been neutralised. And so because it was such a, a thing affecting our movement, we had to speak out against it and publish on it. And at one point, we lost about half our organisation, a third of our organisation over that question. You wouldn't believe it. So because they've adopted all those questions, there are lots of people who have quite a lot of antipathy towards us. But I don't think we should hold antipathy towards them any more than you hold antipathy towards anyone with wrong ideas. So I think they're people who should be won over into this movement. We had a lot of people who were. You know, previous you know, Isabel Crook is an initial member of the CPGB who is still the honorary president, if she's 110. I don't know how long she's going to remain. She's amazing, right? Um, you can find out about her. Um, and others, you know, the Shapiro, you know, uh, and Michael Shapiro joined our organization, sadly passed away. Jack Shapiro, sorry, joined our organization, sadly passed away. But he was an uh, original communist from the CPGB who's there. And, you know, so it's possible to win people over, but it's possible to win the working class over if you're principled and give your message and present your arguments in an objective way, people will be won over by the force of your argument and by the force of objective reality when they coincide. Um, so I think, you know, our job is to build a united communist movement. That was Lenin's advice. We need a united communist movement. But Lenin's, look at how Lenin built the dictators of the proletariat, a united Soviet Union, a united communist party. It wasn't by just getting everyone together and glossing over differences. No. It absolutely wasn't that. It was by constantly and relentlessly criticising policies that were wrong, mm. taking away wrong leadership and winning the majority of the working people to the correct ideas and building unity on the basis of ideas that were useful to them in building socialism. Uh, and that is the path. So people often try and gloss over real questions on the basis of unity. Oh, you don't, don't put people off. But that doesn't build a lasting unity. Unity has to be based on truth and it has to be based upon a programme that can possibly advance you in, in a correct direction. I think that last point that Ranjit made is really the key to that, and that's separating the mass of the members from the leadership. So the leadership are pushing, demagogically pushing, wrong ideas onto their members and they have to be exposed as wrong leaders pushing wrong ideas in the interests of a hostile class. The members, one has to assume, are good-hearted people who your job is to help them to, to see through what's been perpetrated on them and help them to come into a force that's capable of harnessing their very real energy and their very real desire to serve their class in a way where they actually do do that. Because right now they're not. They're being misdirected and misused. And that's a, that's a horrible tragedy for them and their lives and their efforts. And for, and for us. And, ours. <laughs> and, for, and for our class. And for the world. Yeah, definitely. Tim. Well, I've always uh, sort of characterised uh, the cost of living crisis as something that's uh, not accidental. 
No, it's, it's not default. The capitalist system is rigged in such a way to ensure that this is uh, an inverse form of a Robin Hood. Mm -hmm. You know, a redistribution unfairly and unequally away from the pockets of those who sweated labor produces that wealth to a handful of parasites, a rentier class. <laughs> Uh, this is what the British state has now become, where manufacturing is the real base of the economy. The real, the real wealth-creating base has largely dissipated. This has gone from the metropolis to the, uh, to the periphery. So the poorer countries are actually uh, pr producing, you know, producing the real wealth, much of which is expatriated back. Mm -hmm to the uh, colonial centers. Mm -hmm. Some of it is kept back for the uh, purpose of capital accumulation, mm -hmm. reproduction. Mm -hmm. you no, know, but largely we've become parasitic now. You know, uh, we're relying more and more upon the city of London. Mm -hmm. yeah. And that, that, that is what this is about. Yeah. So, um, you know, the, the problem is one of a capitalist crisis of overproduction. It's still there. It, it's never gone away. You know, uh, Ingalls back in 1825, at the, the, uh, the start of the first capitalist uh, uh, crisis. 1885. No, sorry. he was talking Eight. about the 25. No, sorry, sorry. 1885. 1885, uh, 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 oh, okay. sort of uh, corrected that Freudian slip. Uh, 1885, you know, recognised that this would be, this would go around and come around, there would be a protracted, there would be a period where it would last for a while, you know, things would sort of, uh, would come to uh, a gradual climax, and then there would be uh, a period of relative prosperity where the, the crisis would start off, you know, again in a gallop, sorry, a trot, and then uh, a gallop, and then uh, a break, a steeplechase, dash into, uh, into a ditch of another crisis. And this is how it would go on and on, endlessly. You know, so that is where we're at today. They use all sorts of euphemisms like economic crisis, financial crisis, but it actually, it actually disguises the fact that people do not have enough purchasing power to buy back all, that they've, all that's been sweated out of them. Because the basis of the modern capitalist system is surplus value. You know, it's a, to, to give it its a more scientific term, it's called state monopoly. Not called monopoly capitalism, it's called state monopoly, because monopoly capitalism morphed into state monopoly, where the, uh, the, uh, <coughs> the monopolies would merge with the state. And that's what we see when, when the state is intervening, you know, on behalf of uh, behalf of the monopolies, you know, to, to bail them out of, uh, of, of problems that they have. You know, uh, I won't go on for much longer, but briefly, uh, you know, uh, on, uh, on, on Ranjit's, uh, uh, Ranjit's characterization of, of the period of the Second International. 
Now, those parties of the Second International were brought up in a period of relative, uh, relative peaceful development. So they, uh, they opposed social revolution. They supported their own uh, imperialists after, uh, you know, their congresses of Baal, Stuttgart, and Copenhagen had sort of made it a specific point to, uh, to oppose these wars and to recognize the character of them as inter-imperialist wars. And they railed against it and, until the outbreak of war, and then they reneged on that. And they, they came out with the slogan, support of the, uh, of, of the, uh, of the fatherland. Which in an imperialist war is support of one's own, one's own imperialist uh, power. But, um, you know, the, the left, much of the left, our, our opponents, will do all they can to, to obfuscate things and to confuse workers and to sow all kinds of wrong ideas in their minds so as to throw us off class struggle. We need to expose that, and our party needs to redouble our efforts to build a genuine communist party, because nobody else is going to do that. Mm. But I don't think there's anything else more I can sort of comment on. Everyone's had enough. I feel like we've, I feel like we've basically said all the things. Is there anything you wanted to say before we wrap up? Um, not, re no, not really. Thank, thank you all for coming. It was a really, um, really enjoyable meeting. By listening to you all, sorry, you had to listen to me at the beginning. Um, what I would beg you as you're leaving is if you, we've got loads of lit in the back. We're really keen that everyone takes it away with them for personal consumption. Sure, buy your own. Even better, get a stock. Just let us know what you're taking and help us to distribute it and to grow the party. I feel like we've got some really, you know, useful information to give to working people, that we've got a useful role to play in what is unquestionably a period of the British working class's struggle for socialism. We're living through that period. It's a bloody long period. <laughs> but I think we can help to make it a bit shorter and you guys can play a very crucial role in that, and I hope that we will look back and see that we played that crucial role. So thank you for coming in.